If you've been on the internet lately, you've probably heard of the term gaslighting. It's a technique used by manipulative people to make their victims question their own reality. It's a device that effectively neutralizes the possibility of a narcissist being criticized or exposed for wrongdoing by undermining someone else's perception of their reality, their own thoughts, and their ability to make a judgment call. The gaslighter will persistently propose a false narrative and the gaslighted often struggles to maintain their individual autonomy. It's like during a confrontation when you tell someone that something they said hurt your feelings and they said, I never said that, but you know that they did. But it makes you second guess, especially if time has passed. And suddenly, you don't have a foundation for your argument or explanation as to why your feelings were hurt. And before you know it, the issue has been dropped and no accountability has been taken by the person who hurt your feelings. It's an exploitation of trust in relationships and often leaves the victim feeling helpless and the narcissist in a good position to continue manipulating the victim to serve their own goals. We've seen Amber Heard do a lot of this lately, in my opinion, but someone else who is well-versed in the art of gaslighting is Dahlia DiPolito. It was an ability of hers that she was so confident in, she used on multiple romantic partners and many law enforcement officers. Dahlia DiPolito is a famous name in the true crime world. She's beautiful, but manipulative, conniving, malicious, and homicidal. Today on the Crimopedia podcast, I'll be telling you about her story, the story of a woman so deeply motivated by self-indulgent greed that she was willing to burn anybody who got in the way of her financial benefit. So with that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Dahlia DiPolito was born as Dahlia Muhammad in New York, United States. Her mom, Randa Muhammad, is from Peru, and her dad is from Egypt. It's quite difficult to find any information on them individually, but her mother was a waitress and her dad was an insurance agent. By all accounts, the family was pretty normal. At some point, they would pick up and move to Florida, and their normalcy didn't change. Dahlia was also pretty normal as a kid. She went to a Catholic school, she had lots of friends, and she would eventually go on to obtain a real estate license. But there were things about Dahlia DiPolito that her parents might not have been aware of, traits in her character and personality that made her very dangerous. And it would only be her romantic partners throughout her life that truly saw the depths of her manipulative mind. In 2008, Dahlia was working as a call girl for an escort service, being paid to spend intimate time with whoever rung her line. On October 4th of that year, a 38-year-old married man of seven years named Michael DiPolito requested an escort while his wife was out of town. It would only take 35 minutes after he hung up the phone for Dahlia to show up. Dahlia was 26 at the time. She had beautiful long brown hair, beautiful brown skin, and stunning eyes. 
apparently Michael was smitten immediately by her slender figure, her skin, her elusive nature, and all of the other things about her that made her conventionally attractive. Despite being on the job, Dahlia also felt an attraction to Michael. They both agreed that their flame was instantaneously lit, and this was despite Michael being married, but it wouldn't be a problem for long. As much as it feels like I'm telling the intro of this story quite fast, their romance blossomed also quite fast. Michael DiPolito would divorce his wife of seven years only two weeks after he met Dahlia, and the two would get married in February of 2009. Let me remind you, this was barely four and a half months after they had met. The engagement was proposed with a $20,000 ring, an inconceivable price tag, but one that was suitable for Dahlia. One thing about her was that she loved money, and she had multiple ways of extracting it out of people. Michael, however, didn't know that he was bound to be one of them. He was just as excited as she was to receive that ring and get married, and it seemed like the couple were happy and proudly married living in Boynton Beach, Florida. In 2001, Michael DiPolito had actually been convicted of a fraudulent currency investment scam. He had served seven months for his crimes and was ordered to pay restitution. On top of that, he was ordered to be on probation for 28 years. These were all things that Dahlia knew about pretty early on into their romance, and to her, it didn't seem to be an issue. Michael being open about his fraudulent investment scams to Dahlia came alongside him divulging his full financial situation to her. Obviously, he had a lot going on in the money department. Before paying the restitution that he owed, Michael ended up purchasing a $225,000 townhouse in Boynton Beach full in cash, the same one that became him and Dahlia's marital home, as well as a $48,000 Porsche. The way Michael so easily accessed money was very interesting to Dahlia, and she became intimately involved with moving his finances around for him, likely because, again, most of the cash that he obtained was acquired illegally. But again, to me, it didn't seem like she had a problem with this. The more money of his that she saw and she was able to handle, the more that she could get her own hands on if she just found a way. On March 12th of 2009, approximately one month into Michael and Dahlia's marriage, Michael's probation officer knocked at his front door accompanied by two Boynton police deputies. This was the first time in almost eight years that Michael's probation officer had shown up to his house unannounced. This was because, by all accounts, Michael was very forthcoming and cooperative throughout his trial, sentence, and with his probation conditions, given what he was convicted for in 2001. This visit to his home was unexpected to say the least, but it would soon be explained. Boynton police had been receiving anonymous calls that Michael DiPolito had been selling ecstasy and steroids out of his home, and they were there to investigate these claims. The deputies promptly served a search warrant, and all that Michael could do, being very likely confused at the situation, was comply. He knew that he was innocent and had not been dealing drugs, but if they did find something, 
it would violate his probation, the one that he was on for 28 years, and he would be facing another prison sentence of over 10 years. Michael's freedom was effectively on the line, but after the search of his home was over, the police had thankfully found nothing and he was off the hook. This was a pretty profound scare for Michael, and anyone who's been on probation might understand the sheer panic that overtakes you when you've already served your time and have adjusted back into society, but everything you've built can be ripped away from you in seconds. Michael did not know, however, that this would not at all be the last time he would encounter the Boynton Beach Police. It was the very next weekend after the first search of his home that Dahlia had suggested the couple go on a spontaneous romantic getaway in Palm Beach to a luxury hotel. To Michael, it seemed exciting. Spending some alone time with his wife in a fancy hotel? Who wouldn't want to do that? But it was on the Sunday of that weekend when police were actually waiting for Michael and Dahlia in the parking lot of that same hotel. Once again, they were insisting that anonymous calls were coming into the police department, claiming that Michael was, this time, selling drugs out of his car. Police once again conducted a search of the vehicle after serving a warrant, and found nothing, so they moved on. Michael DiPolito was extremely confused. His reputation in the criminal justice system was for fraud and had nothing to do with drugs, so these accusations were extremely random. Who on earth would be trying to accuse him of something like this? Two weeks later, near the end of March 2009, it happened again. Michael and Dahlia DiPolito had went out to a dinner together, and after they'd paid their bill, they stumbled upon yet another Boynton Beach police officer waiting for them in the parking lot. They again went through the same motions. Anonymous calls are coming in about Michael selling drugs, so they need to search the vehicle in accordance with his probation. Unfortunately, this time, police actually found a small dime bag of cocaine stashed inside of a cigarette package. Michael DiPolito immediately became defensive and frankly hysterical, claiming that it wasn't his and it must have been a setup. This was getting ridiculous, and again, Michael's freedom was on the line. Although I'm sure the police have heard this a million times before, remarkably, they believed him and elected not to make an arrest. They would testify later that the dime bag of cocaine was in a conspicuous and uncommon place, not somewhere that you would usually see someone stash drugs that they were actually trying to hide. As well, Dahlia, who was emotionless while Michael was in hysterics over the discovery of this dime bag, was giving the police what they called a bad feeling. It would turn out that Dahlia was also giving Michael a bad feeling, as he had come to the realization that she was the only one who would know when and where they would be going to dinner, and she was the only other person in Michael's life who would have access to his vehicle. But it would turn out that confronting Dahlia about her planting drugs on him would not be taken very well. Once he asked her point blank if she did this to him, on the drive home, she floored the gas pedal, reaching up to 190 miles per hour on the freeway, all while screaming at Michael in disbelief that he would ever accuse her of such a thing. 
Michael became evidently scared for his life as anyone would be, so he decided to apologize and insist he didn't mean what he said, that he was just confused. He was trying to save his own life in that moment, but I think secretly he knew that she was the one who was doing this. And unfortunately, he was right. Dahlia had planted drugs in his car and had been the one calling police trying to get him arrested. Michael would also later testify that he suspected Dahlia had spiked his drinks with antifreeze, but why? You see, it was all a part of Dahlia's master plan. Remove her new husband, Michael, from her proximity while continuing to keep her title as his wife and then take control of his assets. Michael had quite an interesting lump sum of liquid assets in addition to his house and fancy car. As I mentioned, she had became involved in moving money around for him, for whatever reason, so she had seen it all flash before her eyes. She had seen exactly what kind of cash Michael was working with, and it was alluring to her, an allure that she couldn't just push to the side. For someone as narcissistic as Dahlia, she felt that she was entitled to it, and she was going to do whatever it took to get it. At some point during this entire fiasco of Michael being confronted by Boynton Beach police, Dahlia had gotten in contact with one of her ex-boyfriends, Mike Stanley, someone who she had previously also hustled for money and had quite the toxic relationship with, breaking up with him without warning on several occasions and luring him back in with just one text. It would be just one text that she would use in March of 2009 to lure him back into talking to her again. She was able to successfully coerce Mike Stanley back into her life, but it wasn't because she was interested in being with him again. She was now on a mission. Dahlia had asked Mike Stanley to phone Michael DiPolito and pose as a criminal attorney. She then asked Mike Stanley to coerce Michael DiPolito into signing over his house, his largest asset, over to Dahlia in its entirety. And this is exactly what Mike Stanley did, because Dahlia is an incredibly good manipulator. Over the phone, he would tell Michael DiPolito that if he wanted to get off of his 28-year probation early, then all he had to do was sign over the deed to his home to Dahlia. Now, for whatever reason, Michael DiPolito actually bought into this advice without questioning it, and I can only speculate it was due to how many recent scares he'd had about the prospect of losing his freedom if his probation was violated. Being on probation at this point in his life was more risky than ever, and at any opportunity he could get, it seemed like he was ready to break up with that part of his life. So without question, Michael DiPolito would end up promptly signing the appropriate documentation to transfer ownership of his largest asset to his new wife. And just as quickly as Dahlia called on Mike Stanley to help her out, she ghosted him once the deal was done. The prospect of Dahlia having some control over Michael DiPolito's assets was enough to motivate her to attempt to frame him for drug possession with intent to distribute. But clearly, she didn't stop there. Now that she had the house in her name, and now that she'd realized calling the cops on Michael was going to be unsuccessful, especially given she was almost caught for it, she had to resort to more drastic measures if she wanted to secure the entirety of the bag that she felt she was entitled to. 
Dahlia knew she would have to divert Michael's attention away from suspicion now that he had caught on to what she was doing. After the last incident when he confronted her directly about planting drugs in his car, she had to win his trust back. The morning after her third attempt at having him violate the conditions of his release and risk his freedom, she made him a luxurious breakfast and fabricated a completely false, very distracting announcement. She told Michael DiPolito that she was pregnant. This was untrue, but it was an extremely effective tactic in making sure Michael forgot all about the events of the previous night. He was instantly thrilled to become a father, and this announcement seemingly wiped his memory of all suspicion. What Michael didn't know was, at this time, Dahlia was also in the process of contacting another ex-boyfriend of hers, a man named Mohammed Shiadeh. Dahlia had decided that Mohammed would be a better fit to assist her in her next scheme against Michael. And what she was planning to do was bold, so she had to reel Mohammed in easy. At first, they began talking casually, somewhat flirtatious, and eventually conversations would touch on them potentially even getting back together one day. Of course, the way Dahlia was talking to Mohammed and flirting with him was entirely a manipulation tactic, something that she was quite good at. And it was working. They began to confide in each other secretly, and Dahlia had expressed to Mohammed that she wanted to not only end her marriage with Michael DiPolito, but to have him executed as well, removed from her life in the most permanent way. At first, Mohammed states that he wasn't entirely sure that Dahlia was being serious about having her husband killed. I'm sure in the moment to Mohammed, such a forward and bizarre remark would have to be taken with a grain of salt. But Dahlia kept pushing and continued to express a desire to see Michael dead. And before long, Muhammad knew that she was serious. What Dahlia was attempting to do was employ Muhammad for assistance in her grand assassination plan that she had devised in her own mind. Initially, Muhammad had neither accepted or rejected it. But like I said earlier, Dahlia knew she had to reel him in easy in order to get him to comply with killing Michael. And it seemed like she was winning him over, considering she had told him that she had planned to have Michael executed and Muhammad hadn't completely shut her out yet. So it seemed like her manipulation was working. What she didn't know was that Muhammad had other plans. Muhammad Shiadeh listened to Dahlia tell him that he needed to acquire someone that Dahlia could pay to murder Michael, and he instead chose to tip off the Boynton Beach police in Florida in the midsummer months of 2009 about Dahlia's plan. At first, the Boynton Beach police were pretty reluctant in believing this plan. But Muhammad knew exactly what kind of crazy Dahlia was, and he was genuinely concerned for Michael's well-being. But after some pushing, they eventually did tell Muhammad that they would invest the resources to get the proof that they needed, and make sure that Dahlia was not able to hire anyone to kill Michael. The first step for Muhammad was pretending to agree with Dahlia that Michael should be executed, and coming to her saying that he actually found someone to assist with her assassination plan, someone who would murder Michael for $7,000 with an upfront deposit of $1,200. The quote-unquote assassin Muhammad found for Dahlia was evidently an undercover police officer, Officer Whitey Jean. He would dress in plain clothes and meet Dahlia at a secondary location in an unmarked car, 
but one that was still outfitted with a hidden camera to record all communication with her throughout the month of August 2009. All right, I know I got a picture. I've got a picture of uh, the house. Whatever. You know, I know you got an alarm system. If you want it done tonight, tomorrow, or the week, I understand. I can get it done by Wednesday if you want me to. Right. You understand? But I got to do my homework, you know? Right. I got to, you know, know exactly where the place is and how to get out of there, how to get in and out, you understand what the neighbors want. I got to call the cops, you know, report a shooting to see how fast they get to that location. There's a lot of stuff I got to do. Okay. That's going to cost me a lot of money. So I got to buy a phone to do it with and then burn the phone later on. There's a lot I got to do. At this point in the interaction, Dahlia had already handed over a picture of Michael, so the assassin knew who the target was, as well as a picture of their house and the $1,200 down payment. Officer Jean explains to Dahlia that he's planning to make the murder look like a robbery gone wrong. He would enter the house, shoot Michael, rustle some objects around, and then get out of the area. At the house, like how do we, 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 how you know, didn't think he was going to be home because everybody works in the daytime. Right. I'm going to think he's at work, but when he's not at work, then, you know, he gets two in the head. Mm -hmm. That's it, you know, I take a couple things with me, break a couple windows, make it look like a robbery that went bad, it's all over, I'm gone out of there. Dahlia agrees to this, all while continuously looking behind her, towards the backseat of the car, directly into the hidden camera that is filming the interaction. According to JCS Criminal Psychology on YouTube, this was obviously an indication that Dahlia was somewhat suspicious of this encounter. She had lived an entire life of scheming, but had never taken it this far. Whatever suspicion she did have did not waver her motives or intentions. In fact, when undercover officer Jean asked Dahlia if she was sure that she wanted Michael dead, as it was an act that could not be undone, she famously said, Which is why I say that, you know, between now and when it's done, you know, you're not going to have an option to change your mind. Even if you change your mind, you're not talking to There's no changing, no, there's no, like, I'm, I'm determined exactly already. You I'm do positive, this. like, 5,000% okay. sure. Like, okay. I was right. stressing when you told me you were going to come up here, and then I'm, like, looking at the time, I'm like, what's the fact? He's not coming, he's not this, no, you know, it's like, to. all this stuff or whatever. Like, no, when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it, like, Dahlia tells undercover officer Jean that her husband, Michael, is often walking their dog around 6.30 to 7 a.m., and that when he leaves to do so, the front door to the house is typically left unlocked without a second thought. Dahlia, being someone who frequented her local gym, felt that this was a perfect time for her to leave for a workout, so that the hitman could intrude on the home and blitz Michael using the element of surprise when he arrived back from his walk with their dog. The two arranged for Dahlia to go to the gym around 6 a.m., and that is exactly what she did on the morning of August 5th in 2009, arriving at her gym at 5.43 a.m. I'm not entirely sure if the Boynton Beach police had intended to take things as far as they went, but it seemed that Dahlia was more than willing to incriminate herself despite feeling some semblance of suspicion about this whole setup. And so the police just rolled with it, and it was promptly after Dahlia had left for the gym on August 5th when they arrived at Michael's paid-in-cash condo and informed him that his wife of approximately six months 
had been attempting to solicit his murder for hire. Sorry, yes. I'm sorry to share the point. Can I talk to you? Yes, for sure. Okay. Let me tell you something. I need to tell you something real quick here. You need to come with me to the police station. You're not in trouble. Your wife has hired a person to kill you. Well, just just, just take, relax. take it easy. Take a deep breath. Ben, sit down. Okay. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Yeah, just take, take, take deep breath. I want you to put on a shirt and turn the feet to the police station. Can you come with me? I sure. Can, of course I, just, I will. I, yeah, I want to tell you, just, I don't know what, this is a little weird. I know it is. Let's go upstairs. My wife, for just whatever let... reason today, like, I'm a sick man. I had I know. a surgery on my back, went to the gym. I know where she's at. I mean, and I, you know, like, believe me. Like, I know where she's at. Well, let's go upstairs. I'm going to stop rambling, but I mean, I, I, I've been. Do you understand you know, what I'm telling you? <laughs> we, don't, we don't have much time. Yeah, all right. Shortly after Michael DiPolito was escorted to the Boynton Beach Police Station, they would call Dahlia, who was working out at her local gym around 7 a.m., and inform her that her husband, Michael DiPolito, was dead. And she would arrive home promptly from the gym to an entirely fabricated and staged crime scene that was being filmed and aired on the show Cops. The house and front yard was staged as if Michael had actually been the victim of a home invasion turned violent, fixed with yellow crime scene tape and everything, but it was all fake, except for the film crews. After Dahlia is informed that Michael has been killed, she begins to display a large, theatrical show of emotion, one that I contemplated playing for you on the show today, but I'll save you the earache of hearing her fake screeching cries, as of course, in her mind, things were all going according to plan. She wasn't upset that Michael was supposedly dead. It's exactly what she wanted. After the police on scene consoled Dahlia, despite her insistent pleas to see Michael, she was denied that request and promptly brought back to the Boynton Beach Police Department for questioning. To Dahlia, this all seemed to be an innocuous part of the investigative process, and in fact, the undercover detective posing as Dahlia's hitman warned her that the police would have to go digging into her life per protocol. I'm assuming then she was expecting to be questioned that day. I can only speculate also that Dahlia was so insistent on seeing Michael simply to just confirm his death, especially because she continued to ask detectives if she could see his quote-unquote body once she arrived at the police station. This request was continuously denied, with detectives stating, quote, no, trust me, you don't want to see him, end quote, playing into the fact that Michael was supposedly brutally murdered. Dahlia was initially questioned in accordance with the act that police had been playing along with. They began to ask her about anyone in Michael's life who would want to kill him. Dahlia played along too. She recounted Michael's entire criminal history to detectives during this questioning, which, according again to JCS Criminal Psychology, seemed to be Dahlia's attempt at providing several alternative persons of interest in a final effort to make herself seem invested in Michael's justice. And detectives continued to play along also, despite having all the evidence they needed to incriminate Dahlia already for solicitation of first-degree murder. They wanted to see how far she would take this, and so they told Dahlia that Michael had been shot twice after answering the front door to someone knocking. 
Dahlia insisted that Michael would never do this. He would never open the door for a stranger, especially given that they have cameras that film outside of the front door, so Michael would have been able to see who it was. I'm not sure what she was trying to do here by telling police this, possibly to solidify her previous points about other potential suspects being his former associates, but regardless, the detective soon after leaves the interrogation room for 16 minutes, and in that time, they decide to turn up the heat on Dahlia. Despite Dahlia seemingly coming off as cooperative and crying desperate crocodile tears, in her mind, this plan was executed swimmingly. Michael was dead, the police were treating her like a widowed woman, and she was able to, in her mind, successfully offer up alternative suspects for his murder. What Dahlia didn't know, of course, was that Boynton Beach police were in on the entire fiasco alongside Mohamed Shiade and Michael DiPolito, who was alive and well, by the way, and actually also at the police department that Dahlia was at. And after the 16 minutes in the interrogation room that Dahlia spent alone, the facade would shortly come crashing down, just as she was starting to believe that her alibi and big crying eyes were going to let her get away with attempting to solicit murder for hire. But still, police don't fully let it slip that they are onto Dahlia as the instigator of this plan. What they do instead is pull into the interrogation room undercover officer Whitey Jean, who is still acting in character. Now you know that advice of your rights, right? Okay, the game's over with, okay? There's no more games with you and I. Now we're gonna get down to serious business. I wanna know if you know this guy. Come here, bring this guy in here. Get over here, get over here. You know who this guy is? No. You've never seen him before? I've never seen him before, ever. Do you know her? Put your head up and look at her. Put your head up. What were you doing coming out of her house? As Dahlia is being asked if she recognizes or knows this man, he refuses to incriminate Dahlia's involvement and stays silent as Dahlia also continues to deny that she knows him. Again, in the words of JCS criminal psychology, what would happen next would be likely for the first time in Dahlia's life where her charm or sex appeal would be unable to absolve her of the consequences of her own actions. After undercover officer Whitey Jean is escorted out of the interrogation room, again, still acting in character, the interrogating detective tells Dahlia, without context at first, that she is going to the Palm Beach County Jail immediately after the questioning period is over and she is under arrest for solicitation of first-degree murder. Only after a second goes by to let Dahlia absorb the information she was just told does he let her know that the hitman she hired was an undercover officer and that their interactions were filmed in their entirety. You're going to jail today for solicitation of murder. You're under arrest. That's an undercover police officer. We filmed everything that you did, recorded everything that you did. You're going to jail for solicitation of first degree murder of your husband. Did you hear what I just told you? I heard what you said, but I didn't Everything, listen to me. Everything has been recorded. You were photographed in the convertible when you sat in his car in the front of CVS. What do you want to do? What do you want to do here? I didn't Dying do anything. It. Listen to me. I didn't do anything. You're going to jail. I didn't jail. do anything, please. I didn't do anything. 
Tell me you didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. You're going to jail today. As soon as I'm done, they're going to come in here and handcuff you and take you to the Palm Beach County Jail, book you for solicitation of first-degree murder on your husband. Lastly, she's then informed that Michael is alive. Your husband is well and alive. Thank God. Oh, yeah, thank God. No, he doesn't want to see you. He doesn't want to see you. You better quit your playing. Listen to me. I want you to quit your acting and get this over with. Yes, you are. Okay. You know what? You need a real good attorney. You need a real good attorney because we're going to show him the film where you say you're 5,000% sure you want him dead. Despite having her plot exposed and being confronted with indisputable evidence, Dahlia continues to insist she has no idea what's going on, no idea what they're talking about, even after the detective quotes her in the card during the meeting with the hitman, asserting she is, quote, 5,000% sure she wanted Michael dead. Even after this happens, cooperating with law enforcement is not something that Dahlia is ready to do. So, in accordance with what she was told would happen to her, she was promptly placed in handcuffs. Once she's cuffed, a very much alive Michael DiPolito walks down the hallway past the interrogation room where Dahlia is in, and she calls out for him to come see her. I'm sorry in advance for her voice. It's horrendous. Oh my god! Although detectives were ready to arrest Dahlia and easily could have convicted her on what evidence they had, they were interested in trying to elicit a confession from her. This may seem odd, again, because they have the entire crime videotaped, but from my understanding, it's pretty standard. Yes, the evidence against Dahlia was damning. There was literal video evidence of her committing the crime, including the planning and attempted execution. But a confession makes things a lot easier on the judicial side. With a confession, it may be easier to void the need for a long-winded trial proceeding, given that Dahlia would be more likely to plead guilty to the charges she was facing if she already admitted to it. But nothing about Dahlia is easy, and even after she was given a second chance to talk instead of continuously deny her very obvious involvement in the solicitation of Michael's murder, she still adamantly insisted that any and all of the evidence that she was confronted with wasn't real. Do you understand what happened today? What's going on here? A little. Okay. Now, slowly, I'm understanding a little bit better. What's your understanding? I was told one thing, and now it's like, slowly, like, all these things start. I, I, like, I don't, I mean, I don't really know what happened. I'm going to talk to my husband. Okay, well, you can't talk to your husband. He's not here right now. Let him go home. He's taking care of the house and the dogs. So obviously your husband's alive. You saw him, right? I saw him. I'd like to talk to okay. him. Okay. You gotta understand this, okay? Donna, listen to me for a second, okay? Listen to me for a second, okay? This is not our first day, okay? It's not definitely not our second day. 
right? It's an ongoing investigation, all right? Not only do we have your videotape, we have every conversation that you've had leading to this point, all right? So for you to sit here and deny that you haven't done anything, it's not going to help, all right? Because we, we know the whole story from the beginning to the end to this point that we're right here right now. This is where gaslighting comes in. Dahlia stuck by her innocence, and still does, and continues to do so by fabricating false realities so that she can elicit opportunities to continue talking and continue trying to manipulate her way out of legal consequences. This is a very common narcissistic tactic. The longer a narcissist has your attention, the more opportunities they have to continue manipulating you. That's why she called out for Michael DiBolito after she saw him in the police station, despite just trying to kill him. And this is why she actually called him again from the Palm Beach County Jail and asked him to come see her and talk, simply so she can have another opportunity to charm her way out of trouble and convince Michael it was all just some misunderstanding. Uh, okay, this is not true. I have done it too. How do you explain what's going on? Michael during this phone call, quote, I've seen the videos you've seen. Everything they showed you, they showed me. And it's just not true. I didn't do anything, end quote. Dahlia's blatant denial of a reality that is caught on videotape is her attempt at trying to curate a false reality and instill doubt in Michael's mind. Again, ideally so she can continue to assert her dominance, get herself out of trouble, and continue enjoying Michael's assets. To be frank, She's gaslighting the shit out of him, and for the first time in her life, it's not working. Her true motives became glaringly obvious when, again, during this jailhouse phone call, Michael actually does offer to help Dahlia. He asks her to sign over his house back into his name, and he promised that he would take care of her family, and especially her mother, while she was in prison. Dahlia said no. Sign my property back to me that you stole, basically. Yeah, that's what you're thinking, and I didn't steal anything. All right, so listen. I'll have to take this down over these somehow. You'll sign them over to me, and then I will help your mother. Okay? I'm not signing your thing. I know you wouldn't sign anything. I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I can't help you. Dahlia DiPolito would spend 20 months in jail before standing trial in April of 2011, evidently pleading not guilty to the charge of solicitation of first-degree murder. Her defense was haphazard and strange, but given the evidence against her, I suppose her legal team was grasping onto anything they could. Her defense team asserted that Michael DiPolito was a huge fan of reality TV. 
and if you'll remember, the entirety of the staged crime scene at Michael DiPolito's house, as well as Dahlia's arrest, was featured on Cops. Dahlia's defense said that Dahlia's murder-for-hire plot was an elaborate insider scheme so that her and Michael could get some airtime. As a consequence, none of it was actually real. As you can likely guess, this did not hold up very well in court, given that Michael had no idea any of this was taking place until police came to his door telling him that his wife was trying to kill him. And I can only assume that the cops' film crew wasn't called there by Dahlia. It was likely an arrangement previously made with the Boynton Beach police. So if it was an insider scheme to get airtime on reality TV, why didn't she call them? The jury would deliberate for three hours before handing over a guilty verdict for solicitation to commit first-degree murder on May 13, 2011. During the victim impact statements, Dahlia's mom, Randa Muhammad, asked the judge for mercy before sentencing began, but it didn't help that much. Randa assured the court that her daughter was a good person and chalked up the ordeal to the fact that everybody makes mistakes. But evidently, Dahlia's plan was no mistake. It was thought out, meticulously planned, and there had been multiple previous attempts to remove Michael from her life without letting him take his riches with him. It couldn't possibly have been a mistake if the entire defense had contorted her crime into an inside joke. Those two defenses are not compatible. As well, it was Michael DiPolito himself on the stand who called out Dahlia for refusing to be accountable for her actions. Michael had also actually told the court that during the proceedings, his father had passed away, and given the fact that he was called to testify against Dahlia, he was unable to leave and see his father beforehand. But if Dahlia would have just pled guilty and avoided dragging on a trial, he would have been able to go. But Dahlia always has been incredibly selfish, and evidently pleading guilty would never be in the cards for her. Nearing the end of this trial, as it became increasingly clear that she wasn't going to win, her lawyers had apparently already been preparing to appeal. Before handing down her sentence, Judge Jeffrey Colbath spoke to Dahlia directly, telling her that her moral compass was askew, and that he wanted to determine her sentence based on what would be best to rehabilitate her. Judge Colbath pointed out that Dahlia was maniacally motivated by greed, and there was no evidence to suggest that her marriage to Michael or her life circumstances would have pointed her towards any misguided or misdirected anger. Her crime was entirely malicious and self-indulgent. He discussed directly to Dahlia's face her plots to have Michael sent to prison by planting drugs and how this murder for hire was the climax to culminate months of scheming. It was pure evil. Although Judge Colbath's words were profound and his sentence was fair, being 20 years, it was thrown out only a month later in June of 2011 on a technicality. Dahlia's defense argued that the court made a large and profound error by denying her request to individually question prospective jurors about their own exposure to publicity about the crime. You know, given it was aired on cops and all, and by the time she was in court, she had been making national headlines. Although I've never personally heard of someone on trial being able to interrogate prospective jurors, ultimately the District Court of Appeal of the state of Florida agreed with Dahlia and her defense team, and she was granted a new trial. 
one that would become deadlocked 3 to 3 after recycling the same defense, but also this time incriminating Mohammed Shia Day in the plot to get famous on reality TV. Given this second trial was a mistrial, she had a third one in 2017, and once again, just like the first one, jurors agreed to convict Dahlia of solicitation of first-degree murder. And yet, accountability still wasn't in Dahlia's vocabulary. Her new attorney, Brian Claypool, maintained that Dahlia was, quote, the most misunderstood woman in the United States. Frankly, the court and everyone in it saw her as not misunderstood, but as malice, careless, relentlessly selfish, and manipulative. Consequently, she was sentenced to 16 years on July 21st of 2017. In 2019, Dahlia would make one last-ditch effort appeal to the Florida Supreme Court trying to get her sentence thrown out. Instead, her sentence was finally definitively affirmed, and she is now set to be free on August 24th of 2032. On the day of her release, Dahlia DiPolito will be 50 years old. Someone I haven't mentioned too much is Mohamed Shiadeh, the former partner of Dahlia who she attempted to manipulate into helping plan Michael's murder. He was the one who spoke up to Boynton Beach Police and ultimately had Dahlia arrested for trying to commit this crime, consequently stopping her in her tracks from continuously harming other people who she found herself in relationships with. Again, Michael DiPolito was not her first victim. She treated Mike Stanley and Mohamed Shiadeh horribly. And it was the actions of Mohamed Shiadeh that actually put a stop to it all, especially before it got out of hand. Mohamed was found deceased in his Sebring, Florida apartment on October 24th of this past year, in 2021, but I couldn't find any cause or manner of his death. I'm, I guess, glad that he would have seen his risk going to police actually yield a reward when Dahlia's conviction and sentence were definitively affirmed in 2019, because without his action, it's possible that this story may have been written very differently, containing an ending where Michael DiPolito actually was murdered, and Dahlia might have gotten away with it. If there was ever a story to reaffirm to you all as listeners that you should say something if you see something, I think it's this one. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. If you like the show, you can follow me wherever you're listening now so you don't miss another episode. And I'm also on Instagram at CrimopediaPod. You can check out my website too at CrimopediaPod.ca if you want to read a little bit more about the cases I cover and dive deeper into the source material that I use for each episode. Recently, I divided my episodes pages into a 2021 episodes and 2022 episodes tab. I feel very grateful and lucky that I'm able to deliver that many stories to you so far, and I'm hoping that there will be many, many more. You can catch the next one on June 15th of 2022 at 10am Eastern Standard Time. But until then, stay safe everyone, and I will talk to you soon. Music